Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I'm excited to host Stephen Press, Assistant Professor of History at Stanford University. We will be discussing his marvelous first book, Rogue Empires, Contracts and Conmen in Europe's Scramble for Africa, published by Harvard University Press in 2017. This incredibly well-documented monograph follows a paper trail of questionable treaties to discover the rogues or confidence men whose actions touched off the scramble for Africa in the 1880s. Dr. Press shows in captivating detail how private European businessmen and firms produce hundreds of deeds purporting to buy political rights from indigenous African leaders whose understanding of these agreements was usually deemed irrelevant a system of privately governed empires, some spanning hundreds of thousands of square miles, promptly sprang up in the heart of Africa. These experiments in governance attracted notice in European capitals. The book portrays how the whole dubious enterprise came to a head at the Berlin Conference of 1884-1885, when international diplomacy embraced rogue empires as legal precedents for new colonial agendas, opening up a host of dilemmas about the nature of modern sovereignty and, and, and statehood. Dr. Press, welcome to New Books in History, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to join you. As is customary on our channel, I will start us off by asking you about the genesis of rogue empires. What sparked your interest in 19th century rogue empire building? And how would you define the book's historiographical genre as a work of diplomatic history, new international history, imperial history? Uh, well, I, I suppose I would, um, I would, uh, if I start from the, your last question, I, I guess I would like to to see it as as fitting a little bit into all of those uh, genres. Um, to to go to the first question, I guess. Uh, um, I became um, interested pretty early on in, in my graduate study in um, in places and spaces that didn't quite fit um, with what I understood to be European and, and uh, world history. I had a pretty, uh, uh, not that this was a positive necessarily, but I had a pretty Eurocentric uh, view of the world uh, entering into graduate school and uh, my uh, teachers and advisors and, and peers quickly um, expanded uh, my view and my horizons. Um, and one of the things I uh, really took an interest in um, uh, were places that didn't quite have clear nationalist um, or uh, uh, territorial definitions. Um, I started fairly early on in graduate school um, dealing uh, with cases where sovereignty was disputed or contested or shared in some ways. I, I uh, did some research on um, uh, the German leaseholds uh, in Qingdao, China, uh, and I did some research on uh, the U.S. leasehold, one could say, in, in Guantanamo Bay. Um, over time, dealing with spaces uh, like those in which sovereignty was was shared and contested. I started to um, uh, to think about uh, the world's overall. How many of these unusual situations were there? Um, I came to believe that there was a much higher number of unusual cases than was allowed for, and that in fact, if one added them up, maybe even those unusual cases and exceptional cases seemed to constitute. Uh, a majority in certain circumstances. Um, 
at any rate, uh, I had kind of an abiding interest in, in colonialism. Uh, uh, by the time my formative years of graduate school rolled around, I was definitely interested in German colonialism. I was also interested in world colonialism. And uh, I think for my, my general uh, reading lists, I, I uh, came across uh, Adam Hochschild's work uh, on uh, King Leopold's Ghost, a very uh, you know, well-known book and, and really great book, uh, great in a number of respects. Um, you know, I, I think uh, that, that book prompted me to look a little bit more into uh, the Congo Free State. Um, and at the same time, still interested in these anomalous situations, I started to wonder about cases uh, in which uh, either traditional states uh, functioned uh, in a rather uh, uh, business-like way, uh, or cases in which businesses functioned in uh, what we regard as traditional state ways uh, or public capacities. Uh, you know, King Leopold II, in, in the case of the Congo, uh, certainly uh, has been said to have been uh, a businessman uh, and uh, uh, his empire there has said to be kind of uh, uh, the king incorporated to, to go back to an earlier work of uh, Neil Asherson. So um, Leopold II and the Congo were, uh, uh, were anomalous in some ways, uh, but because I was uh, simultaneously interested in German colonialism uh, and these strange places around the world, I began to see links uh, at first, kind of theoretical and um, uh, kind of comparison contrast-like links, uh, and then later on, more links in the chronological and intellectual direction. I, I, I started to uh, to find documents that indicated uh, that there was a real kind of intellectual tradition or lineage, uh, kind of going back to the days of the East India Company, uh, that stretched uh, uh, through the scramble for Africa. Uh, and, and really, uh, in, in some senses thereafter, although I, I thought, uh, uh, I, I presumed to see in the scramble for Africa kind of the largest case uh, for uh, anomalous regimes of, of sovereignty in which private companies or individuals um, uh, took on state functions uh, or functions we would normally ascribe to the state. Um, so... Uh, having having <laughs> shared those somewhat scattered thoughts, um, I guess I would I would say uh, this. Um, another thing I I uh, was thinking about when I, I started to to work on uh, what would be my dissertation and then would be the book uh, Rogue Empires was how there was a bit of a gap also in terms of international history and in terms of legal history between what is usually conceived of as an early modern study or what was at that time conceived of as an early modern study, say studies of, of company governments, uh, whether in uh, uh, places like North America or in the Indian subcontinent. Um, you know, you had, you had that kind of world, uh, it was a very exciting world in which a lot of intellectual and legal history uh, uh, pioneering works were coming out. Lauren Benton's, uh, Adam Kulo's, uh, it's a very long list. And I'll forget a lot of names. Um, and you didn't necessarily, I thought, have that same kind of uh, uh, attention uh, paid to, uh, say, the late 19th and early 20th century, although uh, at that time there were works uh, beginning to come out uh, 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 Fitz, uh, Andrew Fitz, Fitzmaurice's work uh, and and uh, work of some others. Um, you know, from, from my two cents, I thought it would be interesting to kind of examine cases like Leopold II, uh, which who, who attracted a fair amount of uh, attention uh, uh, in tandem with cases like, say, those of German colonies and lesser, lesser known rogues, so to speak, uh, like uh, Luteritz in Southwest Africa, these people get some attention in German history, typically, uh, but far less attention in, say, diplomatic history, international history, and legal history. So I thought, to some extent, there was there was an opportunity for original uh, work and research there, and that's kind of how I wound up um, uh, forming a book that, um, or a dissertation, and then a book that started with these kind of intellectual lineages and wreckages uh, from the East India Company, trace that through uh, some places in Southeast Asia on the island of Borneo, uh, and then ultimately uh, wound up uh, in Africa, mostly Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, trying to, to uh, explore why the scramble for Africa, which we typically think of as beginning in the 
uh, 1880s started then and not earlier or later. Uh, I presume to, to uh, kind of identify particular intellectual conjunctures, especially in the early 1880s, that, uh, that resulted in the scramble for Africa uh, starting, uh, starting then. Uh, certainly if one were looking at structural factors, one could think about things like the, uh, the Suez Canal and, and there are plenty of other uh, uh, the demise of the Ottoman Empire and there are plenty of other important structural factors, but none of those, it seemed to me, uh, explained why we particularly had this scramble for Africa beginning, say, circa 1882-1883 rather than earlier or later. So uh, my rogues or, or intellectual lineages, uh, uh, I hope, uh, had something to say on that subject. Fascinating. So throughout the book, you navigate this blurred line between private and public governance. So let's dive right into it. You open the narrative with the White Raja of Sarawak, James Brooke, and the revival of chartered company governance in Northern, uh, North Borneo. Uh, would you tell our listeners more about Brooke? What role did his own colonial efforts play in the explosion of private empire making in the last quarter of the 19th century? Yeah. Um, so, so uh, Brooke was um, not exactly a, a, a figure that had been entirely uh, uh, forgotten uh, uh, by the time the 20th century came to an end, uh, certainly uh, in, in living memory uh, in places like Sarawak. Uh, uh, he is uh, very much uh, uh, alive, so to speak. Um, but I think uh, what, what struck me was that uh, when I um, started to examine Brooke, who um, you know, was kind of in some ways uh, uh, a, a veteran or an inheritor of the um, tradition of the East India Company, it seemed to me that Brooke's impact world affairs was outsized in relation to his historical reputation, which was, uh, as far as I could tell, something of a curiosity to people uh, who weren't specialists in Southeast Asia. Um, Brooke, through various services rendered to the uh, Sultan of Brunei, uh, somewhat disputed services, uh, had come to to claim uh, pretty much absolute uh, ownership slash rule, and the slash there is is telling, (laughs) Um, uh, of, of what would now be uh, uh, the sort of uh, southwestern portion uh, of Malaysia. Um, you know, the world fairly readily and quickly accepted Brooks' claims and ambitions. Um, unlike, say, Leopold II, he wasn't uh, a terrible, uh, a clear-cut villain. Uh, even at the time, of course, um, there were doubts about his uh, claims uh, to have um, <laughs> uh, legitimately acquired authority um, in a far-flung place as far as Europe was concerned. Uh, but he was someone uh, with, uh, I, I think you could say, uh, kind of a legitimate or abiding uh, interest in actual people, uh, which, which distinguishes him, of course, from uh, Leopold II and others uh, who who followed his kind of intellectual trajectory. At any rate, uh, Brooke was was someone who believed kind of in a in a marketplace of of sovereignty, uh, as as uh, I think it could be called. Um, he believed that through services and contracts and uh, uh, written agreements, in particular, that one could transfer powers to rule quite easily. This was not uh, something that was uncommon or unfamiliar to European intellectual history or European state history. Of course, if one looks throughout uh, uh, Europe, uh, it looks kind of in European annals from the early modern period to uh, certainly through the 20th century. There are lots of agreements that transfer sovereign rights or transfer various authorities, and they do it quite easily, sometimes in exchange for money, sometimes in exchange for concessions or or transfers elsewhere. but Brooke was kind of a rogue, it seemed to me, in that he, someone without any particular royal lineage of, of fairly common stock, I mean, he wasn't exactly uh, coming from, from poor circumstances, uh, but uh, someone who didn't necessarily have standing in international law, who was not uh, a royal, who, who did not have any claim to previous state existence or public authority, someone like that was just entering the system and presuming to take on the functions of a sovereign. 
Um, and this, it seemed to me, was, was quite unusual. Even in the case of, say, the East India Company, one was dealing with uh, a chartered company, uh, and this had been the case for most private experiments in statehood uh, previously. Uh, so to some extent, those, those ventures were uh, presupposing that recognition from other states and European authorities was necessary for their ventures to be legitimate. Brooke didn't necessarily go about it that way. His source of legitimacy was first the Sultan of Brunei, not exactly a traditional European power, uh, and, and secondly, um, uh, recognition from uh, the people he presumed to govern, uh, and then from various entities in the West, like, say, uh, Queen Victoria or uh, the President of the United States and so on. Recognition which he did get over time. Uh, and of course, this combined with his rather uh, romantic uh, uh, buccaneering kind of image, uh, one he carefully cultivated, um, were reasons I found him a compelling source of study. What I didn't know when I first came across the, the character of Brooke uh, was how much he had interacted with what we kind of think of as, as the villains or architects in the scramble for Africa, people like Leopold II. I didn't know until I uh, read more uh, and started to take a close look at primary sources. I didn't know uh, that he had been uh, very much involved uh, as, as a progenitor and as a, a model and as a precedent uh, for, for what would become the scramble for Africa. Uh, yeah. the, the missing link, so to speak, um, was a series of adventurers or rogues who tried to copy Brooks successful, we could put that in scare quotes, uh, uh, example in other, first in other parts of Borneo, northeastern Borneo, what would now be kind of the southeastern portion of Malaysia. Uh, the copycats first did their work there and then, uh, uh, uh later on, um, kind of proliferated and, and spread, uh, uh, to other parts of the world. And, and the main part of the world where that took hold was, was Africa. Um, sorry to, to keep going on about Brooke. One of the more interesting phenomena associated with him, I thought, was that he was almost constantly on the verge of financial ruin. He had, he had started with very modest uh, financial means, and it turned out that uh, his attempt to govern uh, Sarawak uh, by himself uh, was very uh, difficult uh, from an economic standpoint. Governance, it seemed, was a, a losing venture. Um, and, and not uh, the source of fabulous riches that one uh, and many others did imagine it to be. Um, so Brooke periodically went back to Europe and uh, you know, tried to convince the British government uh, to, to help him out, uh, in many cases offering to exchange uh, ruling powers uh, for money, uh, especially when he, uh, especially because he, he did not uh, believe he would be able to, to rule and govern forever. Um, his imitators and the copycats who, who came after him trying to do the same thing, really, uh, provide services or produce documents showing that the powers to govern had been transferred to them, for certain parts of, of the Sultan of Brunei. Um, they talked to sovereigns and leaders around Europe, uh, Bismarck, for example, uh, uh, but there were uh, plenty of others. They tried to kind of hawk their rights. Um, for one, they were hoping to get them recognized and therefore uh, legitimated in some uh, capacity. Uh, and uh, also they were hoping to kind of put a clear value on them and maybe even uh, make, uh, make a pretty handsome profit uh, in the bargain. Uh, the idea, of course, that sovereign rights or sovereignty could be leveraged in exchange for money is, is one that's a little bit, I think, foreign to us at first glance when you think about the modern period, but quite familiar to, to the early modern period in, in European history, certainly. We don't, we don't see it as anomalous necessarily for, to hear that a, a duke or, uh, or, or prince in a particular place saw his uh, dominions as a source of, of revenue or even his, his governing rights. Uh, as a source of revenue and profit. But, you know, kind of putting it in these naked terms uh, in the case of a far-flung place was something these uh, copycats and Brooke, to a lesser extent, did with a kind of um, uh, lack of caution and lack of uh, uh, politeness. And this was something, again, that I would identify as kind of a rogue activity 
in the 19th century. You had a lot of interlopers kind of uh, maneuvering in the spaces of international law that dealt with kind of a club of statehood. And uh, this was, uh, uh, I think, you know, probably the most profound legacy of Brooke, certainly outside the island of Borneo. Um, he, he did really provide a, a big case and example for yeah. <clears throat> introducing new members into the, the, the club of states, members who didn't exactly bring credit to, to the international system. Yeah. It's a wonderful segue into my next question. Um, from there, you draw an intriguing line between Borneo and the book's master conman, as it were, Leopold II, the king of the Belgians. How did the latter, uh, Leopold, manage to acquire sovereign rights across the Congo Basin? Uh, how was the precedent established by European recognition of these private fiefdoms in Borneo used by the European would-be kings of Africa? Yeah, so, um, you know, as I think a number of, of compelling biographies of Leopold II have, have shown, uh, Hochschild's uh, uh, foremost among them, uh, Leopold II was kind of obsessed with the idea of of uh, bringing colonial holdings to Belgium uh, throughout his life. Uh, Belgium, of course, uh, one doesn't want to get too essentialist about it, but Belgium um, it was a fairly small place, all things considered, uh, remained so, uh, had a number of, of kind of existential divisions and, and conflicts baked into its being uh, from, from the 1830s on. Um, and from the perspective of Leopold II, uh, Belgium could only be made great, really, uh, could only be um, uh, could only be made uh, the equal in some senses of its European rivals and could only be protected to some extent uh, through colonial expansion overseas. Of course, in, in Leopold II's case, his big <clears throat> um, example was sitting quite close to home, uh, that of the Netherlands. He saw the Netherlands as being um, wealthy in part uh, and wealthier than its uh, Belgian neighbor. Um, uh, because of its uh, extensive colonial history. Leopold II spent his early life carefully studying uh, what he presumed to be the Dutch example. Uh, he was fascinated by places like Java, where it seemed like the, Belgian, the, the Dutch colonial empire uh, had grown quite rich <clears throat> in a relatively short span of time and with relatively little uh, investment overseas. Uh, from Leopold II's perspective, this was the result uh, sheerly of exploitation. He didn't really see colonial endeavors as a win-win for anybody. Uh, rather, he saw them as as a, a, a fairly straightforward, extractive uh, relationship. Um, he gave no uh, credence to the idea that um, indigenous peoples needed to be consulted or, or really kind of governed in any sort of collaborative way. Um, at any rate, uh, Leopold II uh, was not a very uh, well-liked or respected person early on in life. Uh, he also had kind of a, a psychological reason uh, to look for aggrandizement and prestige overseas. Now, initially, he turned his attention, uh, which, which was something that came as a surprise to me, to uh, Southeast Asia and to some extent to the Pacific. He was shut out of various locations. Uh, he found that his money wasn't really good, so to speak. Uh, when he showed up trying to buy uh, uh, sovereign or governing rights, he didn't necessarily use the term sovereignty at that time, which was, as it turned out, quite crucial. Um, one of the places he was shut out from was Borneo. He flirted with James Brooke. He flattered James Brooke. He tried to um, uh, turn Brooke's financial vulnerability into an opportunity for Belgium to step in uh, as the colonial ruler of Sarawak, that being the, the northwestern portion of the island of Borneo. Brooke had uh, uh, deserved and, and uh, valid scruples about dealing with Leopold II. Leopold II indicated that he would see the indigenous peoples of Sarawak who had lived under Brooke somewhat, uh, somewhat again in scare quotes, harmoniously. Uh, Leopold II saw them as would-be slaves. Uh, this was not something that was acceptable to Brooke. And eventually, uh, Brooke, after having kind of conned Leopold II out of a little bit of money, um, uh, refused to uh, sell governing rights uh, to him. Leopold II uh, was not one to accept defeat easily. He moved his gaze around kind of almost obsessively and manically uh, to other potential colonial spots around the world. And he was always fascinated with creative strategies by which to acquire control. Belgium, of course, had little in the way of an army, 
uh, and overseas muscle. Um, so Leopold II felt he needed to get creative. Now, the traditional narrative uh, about Leopold II is that he turned to Africa, especially Central Africa, starting around 1876. Uh, there's this conference he calls in, in Brussels, uh, geography. Um, he pretends to have a humanitarian interest, um, uh, particularly in ending uh, various East African slave trades, slave trades which emanated to some extent uh, in, in, in Central Africa or, or kind of had their basis there. Um, he calls this conference. He gets some diplomatic support and legitimacy as kind of a would-be leader of, of a major European intervention into Africa. But how does that get us to 1884 and 1885 when Leopold II is recognized internationally by powers including the United States as the legitimate sovereign authority uh, of a massive area that would be called the Congo Free State that's later on the Belgian Congo and, and uh, today, of course, the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So how do we get from 1876 to that point around 1884-1885? That was a question I, I tried to, to provide an answer to or a, a slightly different answer to. Um, and one of the things I, I, I found uh, was that after 1876, Leopold starts fumbling around with various agreements, often uh, often put down on paper, but one, uh, when combing through the archives, of course, realizes how many of these were, were forged and or dubious uh, uh, in, in other ways. Um, Leopold II starts fumbling around with agreements that give him and his agents, often under aliases and uh, kind of a, a, a shifting uh, plethora of names, uh, powers of control over roads or patches of land, or in some cases, um, uh, uh, kind of trade flows. Uh, first starting uh, kind of at the, the western edge of, of the Congo River in Central Africa, and eventually making their way deep uh, into the Central African interior. So Leopold II's agreements early on are, are rather uh, understandably contested, particularly by Portuguese rivals, but not exclusively by them. There were uh, a number of, uh, of nationalities involved uh, from a European perspective in, in Congo trade by this point. Uh, it was certainly uh, considered a, a lucrative area, economically speaking. Um, so Leopold II finds that his agreements don't get all the traction he had expected, and he finds, too, um, that uh, uh, without you know even as much muscle as Portuguese rivals, uh, he's he's not able to really kind of uh, realize his dreams and ambitions, uh, nightmarish ones of course, uh, of control in, in uh, Central Africa. So he's uh, he's struggling, and I think it's it's safe to say that uh, he's he's on the verge of of failure uh, by the time the early 1880s roll roll around, and one of the intellectual forces or legal forces that provides him a, a kind of a, a, for lack of a better term, a, a, a rescue vessel um, is uh, Borneo and the precedents that are being uh, established and firmed up uh, and kind of uh, advertised to the world as of the early 1880s. So uh, in um, uh, around 1882, it is uh, in a rather kind of notable turn in, in uh, the UK. Uh, it is the uh, it is the achievement, and again we can put that into scare quotes of of the then Prime Minister Gladstone to recognize the legitimacy and, and sovereignty of a of a brook imitator in northeastern uh, Borneo. Uh, this will become the British Borneo Company, British North Borneo Company. Uh, and uh, it it um, it is recognized as have, having acquired sovereign rights and governing powers from the Sultan of Brunei uh, via a very circuitous path involving American uh, and and German and British adventurers um, who were direct imitators and, and competitors uh, of Brooke um, Gladstone, uh, who's of course in a lot of ways an avowed anti-colonialist surprises a lot of people by recognizing this new chartered, uh, this new governing company as legitimate and as really um, uh, a, a, a viable option 
uh, not just with regard to the British Empire, but with regard to world affairs. Gladstone, of course, is reminded uh, by himself and others of the rather ignominious end of the uh, uh, British East India Company. Of course, after 1857, uh, uh, with a a major uh, rebellion having occurred uh, on the Indian subcontinent, uh, the British East India Company is replaced uh, as the main governing agent uh, in in British India with the direct Brit, uh, rule of the British crown, at least in theory, although it takes a while for the East India Company to go away. After that point, well, really prior to that point as well, uh, for, for about the uh, 50 to 60 years uh, prior to 1857, the East India Company and its system of private for-profit rule uh, is identified as, as a villain in itself. Um, Adam Smith uh, rather famously calls uh, this form of government the, the worst of all possible forms. Um, so uh, Gladstone and others, after 1857, uh, make no secret of their disdain and dislike for the British East India Company and the kind of private for-profit rule it represents. Uh, they see this anomalous kind of sovereignty as part of the problem. Um, that makes it all the more surprising uh, uh, around 1881 and 1882 when, when Gladstone uh, takes the stance that a new private for-profit governing venture, uh, what we call kind of a, a, what I would call kind of a rogue empire in, in Northeast Borneo, is to be approved and sanctioned and even supported uh, by the British government. Um, in this case, Gladstone uh, decides to give a charter uh, to this uh, British North Borneo Company, uh, which is also uh, this this rogue empire, so to speak. Why does Gladstone give a charter? Well, a charter legitimates the venture, allows it to raise funds more easily, kind of uh, substantiates substantiates its, its ruling claims, and of course gives this uh, great international uh, imprimatur, so to speak, that of the, the British Empire. Uh, to a fledgling venture. On the other hand, Gladstone says the charter's uh, a positive in that it puts kind of you know, theoretical limits to some extent uh, to the uh, to the ruling powers of this private authority. For instance, it obligates the the private authority, at least in theory, uh, to take measures to curb uh, and exterminate any existing slave trade uh, in the area. Um, I mentioned those things again. You know, one of the things uh, I had been interested on, uh, interested in from early on in graduate school, uh, was a kind of regime of mixed sovereignty, um, and this marketplace of sovereignty. Uh, uh, you know, one of the interesting points about people like Brooke again is that they saw themselves maneuvering in a kind of marketplace. Same thing with the Brooke imitators on Borneo. Same thing eventually with the people in Africa, like Leopold II. Uh, but um, one of the uh, consequences of seeing and recognizing that marketplace was to allow for um, uh, uh, another path um, to have these mixed regimes of sovereignty. The British North Borneo Company gets some sovereignty, gets some some recognized governing powers uh, from the British government, and in return, cedes some measure of that sovereignty, some measure of that control. Uh, uh, in exchange for, w- with the acceptance of this charter. Um, so getting back to Leopold II, he hears of all this. It's it's uh, reported uh, in the newspaper. He carefully reads every morning, which is the Times of, uh, of London. Um, he uh, realizes that he's got in his hands uh, the best possible, well, the cheapest and, and least physical po- uh, possible um, uh, form of legitimacy. Uh, he instructs agents who have been fumbling about with various types of written agreements to try to substantiate their authority and claims to start using the word sovereignty a lot uh, and to start insisting that they are in fact following the Borneo example, as he sees it, in Central Africa. An example the British have just said is, is a legitimate and even healthy example. Um, so Leopold II uh, starts to, and again, forgery is the coin of the realm here, uh, in some cases rather brazenly, and in other cases still brazenly, uh, by making uh, uh, edits after the fact to, to written agreements, uh, kind of emboldening their claims and, and contents. Uh, Leopold II um, starts to make a big show of parading these agreements around Europe. 
Uh, often, of course, the, the actual documents are still kept in, in secrecy. But for Leopold, the key thing is to use the word sovereignty a lot, to claim that sovereignty is bought and sold, and to claim that he is buying it legitimately from uh, recognized indigenous rulers, uh, uh, many of which uh, have at best um, tenuous uh, or, or disputed claims and have had very little in the way of a legitimate conversation with Leopold uh, about uh, sovereign rights. So again, kind of summarize here, the key in the transition is to produce these paper documents, which Leopold II calls treaties. He says that he's got agents in this area, of course, for humanitarian reasons, he claims, uh, who are producing these agreements to transfer uh, control and specifically sovereign control over pockets of territory to his various, uh, sometimes he calls them companies, sometimes he calls them individual agents, but to his various organizations in Central Africa. And this is something he uh, he really starts to do as kind of a transition after around 1882. It is, it is directly um, uh, tied to this uh, example from Borneo. And he will continue this uh, uh, through early 1884 and even thereafter. Uh, and that is something that, that raises the attention of other rulers around Europe, particularly Otto von Bismarck. Uh, and it is an example that, again, will kind of spread and, uh, and proliferate. Uh, by virtue of its being compelling and desirable to other European uh, powers. Yes. So this Borneo scheme, a claim to territory without being financial, financially or legally responsible for governing, therefore was a very attractive proposition for European states in the 1880s. So in the latter part of the book, you endeavor to explain why Bismarck agreed to Leopold II's questionable claims over a vast amount of African territory. So why was Bismarck's support crucial in legitimizing the concepts of the concept of rogue empires? And what is your interpretation of the infamous Berlin Conference of 1884-1885? Yeah, so I mean I think um, if you're if you're approaching the 1880s from a traditional uh, uh, standpoint of diplomatic history, Bismarck was at the time regarded as the most powerful, uh, an influential statesperson on the continent. Uh, I think that's. Um, I think that's. Uh, I think there's a pretty strong consensus behind that. If one wanted to do something in Europe at that time, uh, one would of course be well served uh, to have the support or at least acquiescence of Bismarck. Uh, all that said, Bismarck was a rather um, decisively avowed anti-colonialist in regard to. Uh, what was then the, the, uh, the relatively new German Empire. Uh, uh, you know, through the 1860s, uh, uh, German unification had occurred. Uh, of course, this was finalized in 1871. Uh, at that very moment, um, there were rather direct opportunities for Germany to expand overseas as a formal colonial empire. Bismarck consistently and aggressively refused uh, these possibilities. Uh, on, on many occasions, he made direct statements uh, that to the effect that Germany would never, uh, under his watch, have a colonial empire or that German, Germany was not ready to have a colonial empire overseas. Um, so he changes his mind in 1884 and 1885 at the Berlin Conference. Out of that, we get, uh, out of that and after that, we get an overseas German colonial empire. For a lot of historians, uh, dealing with, with modern Germany, this remains something of a mystery. Uh, how do we go from Bismarck very consistently and aggressively making, uh, uh, denying the possibility of a German colonial empire uh, to, to Bismarck embracing it around 1884, 1885, um, and embracing it simultaneously uh, with support for Leopold II's venture in the Congo? What do those things have in common, and, and are there kind of causal links. Um, so what I, what I um, found when I went uh, uh, looking particularly at, at primary sources in the German case uh, was that uh, the shift in Bismarck's attitudes owed quite a bit uh, to the Borneo example again. Bismarck had been one of the European statespeople uh, to whom uh, uh, the imitators of Brooke had been trying to sell their claims to govern uh, parts of northeastern Borneo throughout the 1870s. Uh, as I said, you know, he, he turned down a lot of colonial ventures, some more realistic than others, 
Uh, and one of the ones he turned down and that was pitched to him very frequently uh, was the idea that Germany would buy the governing rights acquired by uh, European adventurers, again, uh, allegedly from the Sultan of Brunei in, in uh, Sava or northeastern Borneo. Bismarck declined all this. Um, uh, however, um, it was the idea and the supposed precedent was brought again to his attention with particular vigor after this British moment uh, in the early 1880s when the uh, British government uh, and crown really kind of sanctioned and, and gave recognition and legitimacy to uh, what became the British North Borneo Company. So really at the same time as Leopold, Bismarck has agents, some formal, some informal, uh, 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 pitching him on the idea of, of a similar venture. Um, the, their focus, the focus of these agents is, is Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and the Pacific to some extent. Uh, it is no longer Borneo itself uh, as of the early 1880s. The final uh, attempts to, to sell Bismarck and the idea of a German overseas colony in Borneo occur really in the very early 1880s after that, that the, the idea is, is done for. Uh, but Bismarck realizes that he has a, a nice uh, precedent in his hands uh, to do a couple things domestically. Now, one of the reasons he's avoidant uh, or allergic to the idea of an overseas colonial empire is, is the expense of it. He doesn't see it really as a, as a winning proposition in regard to, uh, to taxpayers. He's got plenty of work on his hands as he sees it to kind of have the, the, the new German empire digest its territorial hoarding, holdings, which of course include arguably colonial areas within Europe, uh, certainly in the case of Alsace-Lorraine, but also in the case of of the eastern reaches uh, of, of the German Empire. This is by no means uh, a settled territory. Um, but Bismarck is pitched on the idea, starting in the early 1880s, with the Borneo example uh, foremost in mind, that Germany can kind of have its cake and eat it too. It, it doesn't need to uh, really spend much money overseas. It can acquire additional prestige. And importantly for Bismarck, uh, his... Uh, his government, which which is very assured in, in, in a lot of ways, but struggles, uh, especially with kind of uh, popularity in regard to German youth at the time, uh, and does have uh, trouble in, in parliament on, on a fairly recurring basis. Uh, Bismarck is, is convinced, uh, particularly by 1884, that he can kind of uh, channel this colonial cause and mobilize it. Uh, to his own ends, uh, one of which is is for him to remain popular uh, and and remain seen as a dynamic leader, and another one of which is to win a particular election that is set to occur at the end of 1884, toward the end of 1884. So Bismarck uh, uh, decides to change his stance on colonialism, uh, to embrace the idea, and to embrace a series of German colonial holdings that are not, in fact, direct holdings of the government, but rather uh, holdings that are sanctioned as, with, as was the case with the British North Borneo, by the formal German government, but in fact will be run uh, and, and governed and held in the way of sovereignty uh, by private adventurers and companies. Uh, the main sites for his vision uh, are Southwest Africa, uh, today's Namibia, uh, uh, German East Africa, uh, today's Tanzania principally, uh, uh, also uh, German Cameroon, uh, and uh, German uh, uh, Togo land, of course, today's Togo. Um, that is a, often regarded as kind of a motley assembly in, in German history. Uh, people who study uh, Germany at the time say, of course, that Germany was a latecomer and that these were, in fact, kind of colonial scraps. Um, that's true to some extent. Uh, Germany certainly was a late, latecomer. But if you go back to this moment, there's a whole lot of possibility with regard to the map and in fact, some of what's going on is that private actors, we could call them rogues, uh, are focusing on certain vulnerable parts of the African continent, vulnerable in the sense that they don't have uh, pre-existing European claims that are recognized and legitimated. They're coming to these areas and they're purporting to produce contracts, or in some cases they'll call them treaties, uh, that sign over sovereignty to them in exchange for money or cash payments. Uh, or services rendered in the way of military support, but more often cash payments. Um, there are uh, German actors doing this. They're doing it somewhat independently of Bismarck, but also uh, at his behest, as of, say, early 1884, 
And they're going to produce a way for Bismarck to say at home, look, I've gotten you, the German people, uh, an overseas colonial empire with virtually no investment uh, and uh, virtually no commitments. If it all works out, great. Uh, if it doesn't, uh, uh, nothing really lost significantly in the way of financial or military commitment. Uh, finances and military commitments being two of the principal reasons Bismarck had rejected uh, the idea of an overseas colonial empire prior to the uh, mid-1880s. So Bismarck is looking for ways to legitimate this and looking for ways to pitch it to the German population and to populations around the world. Uh, he um, uh, I think finds a good context here, uh, uh, a fruitful context, uh, because of Leopold II's uh, kind of frantic and uh, indomitable activity. Uh, if Leopold II's venture succeeds and is recognized as legitimate at this time, it will result in more legitimacy and therefore more success uh, for Bismarck's unique colonial experiment. Uh, in a sense, Bismarck can say this isn't very unique at all. I'm merely doing as Leopold II is doing, and indeed as the British are doing, and as a host of kind of international actors are doing. So there's a kind of, um, I guess we could say, honor among thieves, or uh, a kind of uh, a, a kind of intellectual commonality that becomes, or an international legal commonality that becomes in itself uh, an argument uh, for the legitimacy of this venture. And that's one of the things that the Berlin Conference in late 1884 and early 1885 is really about. It's about um, it's about a shared set of rules, of course, for the carving up of Africa. That's entirely correct as an interpretation, uh, but it's also about a set of rules that privileges and and uh, validates a a scheme for private uh, rogue actor, you could say, control of uh, various portions of sub-Saharan Africa. This is a scheme that will benefit Bismarck as he sees it at the time. It turns out to be a somewhat erroneous view, uh, but nevertheless, uh, in the spirit of realpolitik, uh, Bismarck uh, uh, gets behind this idea and in fact lends the, the full diplomatic weight of Germany to Leopold II's venture, which quite arguably uh, would not have succeeded without the support of Bismarck against, say, rival French, Portuguese claims and the like. Uh, the other... Uh, actor, of course, at the time that becomes quite important in, in assisting Leopold II in getting recognized as the sovereign power in what will become the Congo Free State is the United States. Um, they stand uh, less immediately to benefit from an embrace uh, of this, uh, of this uh, sort of series of private states and empires throughout Africa. On the other hand, the United States has been a place that since the 1830s, has been enthralled uh, uh, by and with the story of adventurers in Borneo. The U.S. was one of the first powers to recognize James Brooke as the sovereign ruler of Sarawak. Uh, it is uh, the place from which the uh, initial Brooke imitators come, uh, and it is a place uh, that uh, you know one could debate the reasons um, is quite friendly uh, to the idea of mixing business and governance uh, in, uh, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So that support comes around 1884, 1885. It is not exclusively uh, European or Anglo-European support. In fact, the uh, Ottoman Empire uh, and uh, the Sultanate of Zanzibar do sign off on this scheme. Uh, but what we get out of the Berlin uh, Conference circa 1884, 1885 is a recognition and a validation of private colonial governance for-profit uh, company governance in many cases, or for-profit individual governance uh, in uh, most of sub-Saharan Africa. This doesn't end with the Berlin Conference. Of course, in some ways, we're still living with the consequences today, but rather immediately in the in the years and couple decades after 1884-1885, we get further imitations of the Borneo example. Um, everyone in Africa saying, I'm kind of following in the footsteps of of, of the adventures on Borneo, Brooke, and others, and then, of course, following in the more recent and immediate examples of European actors in Africa who've already kind of laid the groundwork. So uh, a trail of imitation uh, uh, emerges, uh, and there are so many examples, there's kind of a cascade of them, uh, that this um, uh, particular approach uh, to colonial governance in Africa uh, really becomes quite widespread. 
by the by the 1890s. Now, it doesn't last very long. And in fact, a lot of the European powers that embrace this idea of sort of Little East India companies or or large James Brooks running around Africa come to, to understand uh, that this is not, in fact, the, uh, uh, the situation of minimal risk and maximum gain uh, that they had anticipated. Um, before long, Britain and Germany, and even Belgium to some extent by around 1908, uh, or perhaps earlier, will realize uh, the uh, error of, of their ways. Um, and even if they don't, of course, uh, uh, by that point come near to uh, really uh, facing up to the uh, problems uh, and uh, uh, serious crimes of, of, of colonialism, uh, they do presume to, to turn around and face uh, what they see as the evil of private or, or company-run or individual-run colonialism. So, so that's one of the things kind of at the, at the end of, of the book I'm trying to trace, you know, what are the, uh, just as there are lineages from the East India Company that to some extent result in the scramble for Africa as we get it in the 1880s, so too there are lineages of the scramble for Africa and this private rogue component that we're still dealing with into the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. A great summary of the book's contribution. Ultimately, how did this anomaly of privately bought and privately run state square with contemporary legal theories of sovereign authority, this is something that that you discuss at the very end. Yeah, um, you know, international law is uh, is not um, a, a uh, stable or set um, institution or set of institutions by the 1880s. I mean, one of the uh, important. Uh, achievements of the uh, of the Berlin Conference is to is to um, uh, show that uh, I mean <laughs> maybe we can see this is somewhat more positive uh, as as a legacy is to is to show that the international community, which of course is very Eurocentric at this time, um, arguably remains so, uh, is to be involved and consulted as our international lawyers on how territorial expansion occurs. Uh, or how governance occurs in various areas of the world. Um, there are international lawyers present at the Berlin Conference, uh, uh, Travis Swiss being one of the famous cases, yeah. but not, not the only one. Uh, and uh, to some extent, the conference is kind of a, a shot in the arm for international law. On the other hand, uh, a lot of what the conference is doing is saying that the, the work of major international legal scholars, uh, juris consults dating back to the days of, of Grotius, doesn't really uh, mean that much in terms of practice, uh, but also arguably in terms of theory. So what do I mean by that? You know, from the early days uh, of, of what we could recognize as kind of modern international law, um, uh, the, the foremost minds typically, uh, and the most esteemed minds of international law are saying a couple things. They're saying the idea of paying money for sovereignty or trading it for sovereignty or, or kind of having it exist in a, market pl- in a marketplace is bad, is outdated, and is anomalous. And it, should be, it shouldn't exist. It may still exist kind of in practice in a few places, but hopefully this is all winding down. This is a, a kind of old patrimonial way of viewing the state and, and viewing governance, and it's on its way out. Should be, and that, that, that uh, demise should happen as quickly as possible. Um, they're saying this uh, in the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, and indeed even in the 1900s. So they're, they're saying something we would identify as um, as valid in a lot of ways, but it's clearly something that doesn't quite take hold uh, or become universal by any means uh, by the late 1800s. Um, you know, in part, what these rogues and, and people like Brooke are doing is shaking up the world of international law. Uh, they are not really paying attention uh, to the ideas about governance and the ideas about treaties uh, that uh, that we would like to think are in place. Uh, again, if we think of states and statehood as a kind of club, uh, they're presuming to enter that club or disregard its rules uh, with, with uh, regularity and, and aplomb. Um, in the 1880s, that disruption of some of the principles of international law, some of its means and methods, really, uh, I would argue, accelerates uh, and and becomes more pronounced. 
um, that is not necessarily of long duration. Uh, by the 1890s, uh, many international lawyers and jurisconsults who would deny the legitimacy of, of these private for-profit or, or rogue empires in Africa are in the ascendant again, and they look correct and validated. But in the 1880s, especially around 1840, 1885, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's somewhat the opposite, I would say. Um, now, these debates uh, about, A, whether this is a good idea, and B, whether it was legitimate, they really continue into the early 1900s. And that's um, something kind of neat that can be traced in various court cases, um, uh, panels for arbitration. Um, really, there, there continues to be division on the subject of whether this was uh, uh, truly legitimated by European powers, uh, whether uh, the uh, for-profit and private governing ventures in Africa um, were in fact states, whether they were state-like, uh, whether they were um, sovereign, semi-sovereign, quasi-sovereign. There are a lot of terms surrounding this. And if, for a lot of European governments in the run-up to World War I, it becomes in fact important uh, and significant to deny uh, that these uh, rogue empires were ever indeed independent of, of their European home countries. I mean, that's something I, I really kind of focused on in the... Uh, in the German case, um, as I um, as I was wrapping up the research uh, for uh, Rogan Myers, mm-hmm. and this also leads me to my my final question: uh, How has this project uh, led you to your current research team, uh, namely a reevaluation of Germany's entire colonial venture in in Africa? Yeah. So um, when I was uh, doing the research kind of on the beginning of the German colonial presence in Southwest Africa, um, I became really interested in a uh, section of the Namib Desert that was full of diamonds. Um, at the time, uh, in the early 1880s, it was thought, but not proven in any way, that, that this um, uh, stretch of territory would, would yield tremendous diamond wealth. That wealth didn't actually materialize, really, uh, with any kind of abundance until 1908. Uh, but in the meantime, there were various ma- uh, various battles and, and machinations surrounding sovereign rights or, or ownership um, of governance in the area that ultimately contained the diamonds. Because of the um, Borneo examples and the nature of Bismarck's colonial foray in 1884 and 1885, and because of, again, uh, the example of people like Leopold II, um, there wound up being quite a bit of, of uh, uh, contest, court cases, uh, criminal cases, and everything else over the diamond wealth that eventually materialized in, in, the, in, in German colonial Southwest Africa. So that was something really interesting for me. And I thought, um, you know, these rogue empires, so to speak, are, are pretty short-lived in the scheme of things, even, even by... Uh, the standards of, of historians who specialize in, in one particular period. Um, but on the other hand, their intellectual lineage, their legal lineage uh, can be pretty pronounced, pretty disproportionate in some ways. And uh, certainly a lot of the boundaries we have, if we're, if we're looking at a place like Africa on the map, are, are uh, a, a lingering uh, presence and a lingering testament uh, to the, uh, the power of these particular empires as they emerged in the 1880s and 1890s. So, um, you know, in my more recent work, uh, I've been kind of focusing on a commodity chain surrounding uh, diamonds, um, diamonds that ultimately flowed from German colonial Southwest Africa to Europe and, and from there on to, to the United States with a kind of overwhelming regularity in the, in the early years of the 20th century. And I think as with, um, the kind of intellectual lineages of, of the rogue empires that I was trying to, to address in that book. Um, I'm, I'm trying to look now at, at uh, the, the legacy to some extent of the colonial diamond trade and particular flows uh, uh, related to that trade that resulted um, from this moment in the late 19th and early 20th century of, of European colonialism in Africa. And if I'm not mistaken, your current research has already bore fruit, the new book is to be published in 2021. 
yes, hopefully uh, in April 2021, it'll all be physically in print. Um, and uh, yeah, I certainly look forward to uh, to the um, to having people read and and you know uh, discuss that. And, and um, yeah, I, I guess it's uh, it's finally out of my hands now. So um, I will just <laughs> uh, I will just await uh, the the actual publication. I, for one, cannot wait to have my hands on it. Um, Dr. Press, it was an immense pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for joining New Books in History. The feeling is mutual. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.